Hello everyone and welcome to episode number 8 of Ben's Learning Lounge. Now this is the last episode of the series. Yes, it's coming to an end after just over a month now, but not to worry, there will be a series 2 that will be coming out in hopefully not too long that will be bigger and better than this series. So I want to thank everyone for the support I've been having throughout this series, uh, for making it happen, for encouraging me with new ideas and all the positive feedback and also for the donations as well. So I really want to thank everyone for that. Now for this last episode, we're going to be talking about the NHS and coronavirus, which is obviously very topical at the moment, with my good friend Huz. So in the last three years, Huz has spent most of those working in a hospital, working in old age medicine, general medicine, stroke and surgery, and since December he's been working in GP practices as a foundation doctor. He's also not long completed his medical degree and talks about a lot of really interesting stuff from is the coronavirus as bad as we think? How much of a role does politics play in the UK system? Why removing fax machines ended up being such a mass scale problem for the NHS? And also what surprised Huz the most about patients when he started working for the NHS? So all that and a lot more to come on the podcast. Just a reminder too that this podcast is a fundraiser for Mind. If you'd like to give to them, just go to justgiving.com slash fundraising slash Ben's Learning Lounge. One more time for the series, that's justgiving.com slash fundraising slash Ben's Learning Lounge. It'll really show me that you've enjoyed what you've heard so far. And now, on to the episode. Hello, Huz. Thanks again for saying you'll be on the podcast. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So, it's brilliant to have you on. I think a lot of people are going to be quite happy to hear from you, especially when it comes to things like coronavirus, the NHS, working in, in the, the field of medical... Medical, what would be the word? Healthcare? Medical, yeah. <laughs> working in the field of healthcare. That's the one. Um. Yeah, tell me a bit about your experience within that field so far. Um, so I've uh, been working as a foundation doctor, also known as a junior doctor. So I've been placed mostly in a hospital and then uh, since December I've been working in a GP surgery in Lancaster. Since then and I'm about to start going into GP training in uh, in August. So, so yeah, since this sort of coronavirus has been happening, uh, I've just been in a GP practice. Oh, nice. So how long did it take you to train? Because I've known you for a few years now when you've been at university doing your PhD, right? Just the uh, medical degree that I was doing. So that takes five years and then I interpolated and then I did a year for a BSc in uh, psychology. So yeah, I've been in like stuff for quite a while. You have. I, I suppose that's why I thought it was a PhD because it takes you so damn long to get through it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Talking a little bit about this coronavirus thing, it'd be great to hear your opinion about what's going on. The, the main thing that I'm I'm interested in is knowing whether the, the news has done it justice, the amount of hype that's been towards coronavirus. How has that been on your end? Has it been as bad as people have made out? Is it perhaps not bad at all? From your lens, how is this whole coronavirus situation? Uh, I think the media's done a really good job of basically making it out that this is a very serious issue. And obviously the lockdown when a government sort of makes this much of a of a disruption to people's lives obviously makes it clear that this is, well, it is very serious. And it's difficult to, to know at the moment how serious it really is. I mean, obviously the deaths speak for themselves, but it is a disease and there are other diseases out there. I mean, every every winter we have the flu and there's there's all the other diseases that happen all the time. You know, you can, you can argue how much worse is this disease from from the flu, let's say. I mean, we don't lock down every winter because of because of the flu. I mean, the, the flu does make people seriously ill and, and, and kill a lot of people every every year. In terms of the media, I think, like I said, 
it's it's done a good job of making people almost be worried. And for some people in the in in the well, generally, it might have sort of tipped them over the edge in a way. Mm. And it's, it's sort of in the GP practice, you get a lot of people who are now really really stressed or really really anxious, and uh, it's 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 one one step too far. And so in in the GP practice, you spend a lot of time dealing with people that are just struggling to cope now because of it. Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, some people have financial issues from being furloughed. Some people want to be furloughed, and we get some of that to come in as well, wanting a mm-hmm. sick note, which we have to say no to, essentially. And it's it's a just a massive disruption to, to everyone, really. Um, is it justified? Um, I guess we'll know when things sort of calm down and the dust settles, yeah. whether it was worth the disruption or not, because we're going to take a massive economic hit afterwards if we haven't already. Yeah, it's true. I think the the future's uncertain, but especially as you say there about we have to wait until the dust settles. I think a lot of the worry for people and a lot of that hysteria has come from not knowing exactly what to do. It's not too obvious on exactly how to protect yourself. I mean, there's a lot of these things about, oh, you know, make sure you wash your hands. Some people are saying wear a mask. Some people are saying, oh, wear a mask. I don't know what's coming from what source at the moment. So I think maybe the the trouble at the moment is people not knowing what's the right thing to do especially when now we live in this sort of what like globalized world where people know each other in different countries and each country is handling it in sort of their own slightly different way and to know which way is the right way is really difficult so i was wondering if you think that the uk is dealing with it in a proper way at the moment i mean because we don't know much about this virus things are changing all the time and we're learning new things so the guidelines are changing all the time it's been announced that from tomorrow uh, all staff in the hospital have to wear a mask, and, and you you can argue that well why didn't we why wasn't that put in sooner why are we doing that now and once again it is difficult to say whether we've handled it well I mean our death rate speaks for itself really which is it's a lot higher than everywhere else in Europe so that one statistic is enough to say we're probably not handling it as well as everywhere else in Europe but it, it, we'll see how things develop really. In terms of guidelines and what we should do from the hospital, uh, well just being a medical professional, the guidelines are changing on a, on a day-to-day basis and even we're a bit like how, yeah. how, what are we supposed to do now because I mean, uh, things just change so quickly and, and in terms of masks I would say yes there is a benefit to wearing a mask but it's, I guess it's on the individual how at risk they feel or how seriously they want to take it. I mean, if you're going to be in a public place, a mask would probably be sensible, but that, that's completely up to you, really. I suppose for those people, too, it, it wouldn't actually hurt them to wear a mask if they thought it could be beneficial. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can argue that it's an inconvenience, but I, I guess it's the sort of the government who has the final say on whether it's actually by law that you should wear one or or not. God, let me tell you, Huz, I was uh, I was in Vienna for a good couple of months of this, and I had to get a plane back from Vienna uh, to come home, but it was compulsory on that plane to wear a mask, and I understand yeah. why, don't get me wrong, but when you go through that phase on a plane, I don't know about what, what the altitude is, but there's like halfway through a flight, it gets really bloody stuffy in there. I'll tell you, it was the <laughs> hardest thing to keep that mask on my face and not, you know, I would, I would genuinely, I would sneak a little breath every now and then. You know, I, I don't want my mouth out because that thing in there, it just stinks. And especially it doesn't help. You have to watch what you eat in those things, I swear. Like, you know, you decided to eat a nice little cheese sandwich beforehand. Like, you're going to regret that three hours down the line. <laughs> I think from wearing masks in the GB practice, I have realised how bad my breath smells. That's <laughs>
Yeah, yeah, no, that's definitely the a strong negative there to wearing a mask, and it isn't necessarily health related. It's perhaps mental health related, depending on how serious that is for you. You've you've also mentioned to me too, because the government has done some things, right? Like they turned one of the arenas didn't they, into some kind of like medical area for people. What, what was that all about? Um, so so we actually locked down quite late compared to other countries, and you can argue that that was that was a mistake from our part. I think someone someone higher up has said that if we had locked down a, a week sooner, we'd have a, a lot less deaths. It's crazy that, just a week. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean there's, there's an argument to be made that we have really poor leadership. And, you know, our government has, has really had to sort of balance what's more important, shutting down our economy or uh, looking after the, the well-being of, of people, really. So I think while they were arguing with that, they got to a point when th- there was no point, there was no time to argue anymore. You just shut everything down. And then since then, I mean, the media, what you see in the media is, is difficult to say that it directly reflects what's actually going on in the ground, on the ground. I'd, I'd say things like opening up these pop-up hospitals like the Excel Arena in Manchester, it was probably more of a publicity stunt than actually what was needed at the time. I mean, it was just to show the public that you know we're we're making the most of it. Um, mm-hmm. I think China, when 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 the when the pandemic started there a lot earlier than it did here, one of the things they did is they built a hospital in six days. So I think it was to almost rival that in a way to be to show that we're taking it as seriously as China is. Um, but the reality is we didn't yes. even use it. We there were maybe. <laughs> at, at most maybe 50 patients 50. And, and you know they said that it had the capacity for a couple thousand so it really wasn't used um but yeah that that does raise a lot of suspicions i mean i mean possibly i mean you, you could argue that we over prepared and we didn't know how bad it was going to be but i'd say generally yeah we have over prepared even if it was a bit too late by then i think you make a good point there too because the to say about the, the government's response has so much to do with it because it's almost impossible to remove the idea of the government from the NHS and especially politics from the NHS too, which is it's just a natural thing which seems to come along with it. Is that something which you find has its effects on the lower levels of the NHS about what what you should be doing based upon the politics higher up? Oh, definitely, definitely, it's all political. I've he- I've heard the, the phrase that the NHS is the UK's religion, if you will. Um, no, no politician is going to badmouth the NHS, uh, even though it has a hell of a lot of flaws. And, and it's, it's always used as a sort of political tool. And, you know, politicians use it for their own gain, if you will. And the, re- the reality is that I'd say the NHS is a really big, old, clunky machine. And the world is changing very, very quickly. And the NHS is struggling to keep up with, with the times. I, I mean, what an example is that until... A couple of months ago, we were still using fax machines. I don't think any other organisation... You're joking. We're still using fax machines in the NHS. We are, yeah, yeah. In 2020? Yeah, 2020. We're using fax machines and pages as well. Still using pages. <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, it's 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 funny and it's sad, but it, it's just the reaction is just... That's just incredible. Yeah, yeah. I think Matt Hancock was the one who has said that we're going to stop using fax machines. Um, so, so we had this very long period where all the fax machines were taken out, but there was no system implemented on how you're supposed to do what you were doing by a fax machine previously. No, so so one of the things that we used to do is that if we wanted to refer a patient from one specialty to another, let's say I'm on the stroke 
team and I, there's a patient that I need a, a urologist to see, I might need to put a form in to get a urologist to see them and I'd need to fax it. Well, they removed the fax machine, there's no way to actually refer to them. So it just caused more of an issue than it was previously. Yeah, yeah. I to think that the fax machines were so were so valuable to the NHS that without them, <laughs> crumble. <laughs> Maybe that's the secret to the to the true issue with the NHS. It's actually the the fax machine being removed in past months that have actually caused more of a problem <laughs> than anything else. Well, how do you think the NHS is? on its level to like other economically developed countries? Do you think it's sort of on par with those or would you say, I mean, my assumption from just reading the news would be that it actually performs a lot worse than a lot of these other countries. But, you know, I wouldn't be an expert in saying that. So, I mean, I haven't worked in other countries, so it's very difficult to say. Statistics show that the NHS is actually one of the most efficient healthcare systems in the world. So we get a lot of bang for our buck. And then it depends on how, where you compare it to I mean, there's some people that say that it's underfunded. I would, I would disagree. I would say that there is a lot of money going into it. However, it probably could be used a bit more effectively. There's a lot of management that's not done well, and it's usually the people on the ground that suffer because of it. And and the people on the ground are very, very good. When I say the people on the ground, I mean the doctors, the nurses, uh, all the auxiliary staff. Um, they do an amazing job with what they're given. Um, to keep things together, really, and that's essentially what you spend a lot of time doing is trying to keep things from falling apart. That is, that sounds like a good thing about life, there, isn't it? Really, there's something beautiful <laughs> and deep within that <laughs> that we're all doing all the time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of doctors, there is a massive thing where a lot of doctors move to Australia and New Zealand. Ah, yeah. So, so um, I mean, they speak a lot. About, there's a lot of talk about there being not enough doctors and. The reality is that it's not that we don't train enough, it's that they all leave and they're all going elsewhere. Because they find there might be more pay in a private world or or what? Uh, I don't know about private world, but um, generally it's a better lifestyle in all ways. I mean, the doctors in the UK are some of the least well-paid in the world or in the first world. Wow. And And I think generally it's just a better lifestyle and less hours and and just a better system i believe i really hope that things can improve them for the nhs i mean i don't know about you but i like to i always like to remain optimistic about it but i know that there's always the continual worry about it slipping away from our fingers yeah yeah i mean i think as long as people fight for it uh it's not going anywhere but at the same time being uh, seeing patients that come in there 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 is an argument that there is a lot of of abuse almost. Our society is changing. The role that healthcare plays in the within the society is changing as well. And for example, I think GPs. Uh, we see a lot of mental health, and we see a lot of people that are are struggling really. And you could argue that the GP is like the priest of of of, of yesteryear, where previously people used to go to the priest with their issues, and he, he'd given all he'd do is mm. you know he'd, he'd give them an ear. And you just listen to their issues, and that and that plays a big role in itself. Nowadays, people don't really do that, and you get a lot of people going to the to the GP instead. And there's only very little a GP can do with how much time he has to see a patient. But a lot of the time, he he offers a lot of different pills because that's what a GP can do. Um, and and you know, there's an argument yes. that is that the is that the right thing to do? True, it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because that GP. 
like you said, if that role was originally taken by the priest who would lend an ear, a doctor doesn't really always have that time just to lend an ear. I mean, I know a lot of places have sort of a limit, right? Like 15 minutes or something with a patient. And then that's kind of like the general rule of thumb, isn't it? It is, yeah. So um, at the moment, it's meant to be, you know, 10 minutes to see the patient and then five minutes to sort of document everything. It's it, it's uh, it's incredible that the GP can see anyone in that time, really. Well, how, how realistic has that been for you? Um, so Because I'm in training. Um, at the moment, they've been giving me half an hour appointments, and and I started off slow, and I can I've sort of sped up a bit, and you you get a bit more efficient, and you realise what's the most important things to ask and do. When it comes to sort of mental health, no chance is, is ten minutes enough. I'd say not even half an hour is enough. I mean, I mean, a lot of the time with me, other GPs will send me patients that they know need more time, and so they send them to me because I can give that time. But it's 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 difficult, really. How would you say then you've been surprised by things in the NHS about either reasons for patients coming in or how the system works? What sort of surprised you when you got launched into that field? Um, I think in, in the GP, the most surprising thing has been how people will come in with symptoms and you investigate. You know, you might take some blood, you might do a scan and you, and you find that they're absolutely fine. And there's no indication that there's anything going on with them at all. And it's not that they're lying. And it, it, you know, their, their symptoms are real. But it is how the connection between body and mind, how, how the impact on one can affect the other. Because if you probe them further and you ask about, you know, what's going on in the life, any stresses, you'll actually find out there's something really sick, like something that's really mm-hmm. troubling going on at the, at the moment. And that's sort of leading to symptoms. I see. I, I think I have an example of that. So I might be wrong. Are they the ones that are called psychosymptoms? Yeah, yeah. So it's called psychosomatic. We try not to say that to patients, uh, even if it might be true. Right. It's, not, it's not what most people want to hear, but it, it is the case. I mean, there's an argument for IBS related to mental health. Um, I mean, I've seen patients on the stroke ward come in with symptoms that fit with a stroke, but you do a, head, a scan of the brain and it's absolutely fine. And, and a consultant, the top doctor, will be able to figure out what's psychological and what's not and it's called a functional neurological disease where um, their mental health is sort of leading to symptoms of a stroke which is incredible really wow that is that is the power the brain has on that type of stuff i I had something similar uh, when i was just like 13 or so very stressed and things like that i used to get uh, chest pains and i remember i would go to the to the docs about it because obviously they worry when some kid comes in or anyone really complains of chest pains all sorts of checks had to wear a heart monitor i think there was like had to see four different doctors over the course of two months and they concluded that there was there was genuinely completely nothing wrong with me and those went away on their own and you know it's very difficult to understand at the time but when I look back and the amount of stress that I was under during that period and also the amount that I would expect myself to have a chest pain when I thought that they would come was very linked and, and it taught me a lot about that power that the brain does have over your actual symptoms. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I mean, we get people coming in with, oh, my jaw hurts and that's because they're clenching their jaw at night and not realising, you know, mm. back pain, short, um, neck pain and then all the other symptoms of, you know, tummy pains. You, you name it, it could be psych- psychosomatic, really. And then you can't really rule it out until you investigate and you find that it's not anything else. Um, and that it's tricky. It's very tricky. 
Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, and I suppose there's a lot of the body and mind that obviously we still don't completely understand. You know, modern medicine is is marvellous and we've managed to do a lot of crazy things with it. But I've also heard, for example, that we don't fully understand the complete ins and outs of how uh, antidepressants and things work. So I was wondering, you know, what's your opinion on how the medical field may evolve in the future? It's it's difficult to know. I I feel like in terms of sort of the brain, we, we really don't know much about it at all. There's certain neurotransmitters that people talk about all the time, sort of serotonin, which is related to depression, noradrenaline, GABA, and, and there's probably about a dozen of them. But the reality is, is there's, a, there's over a hundred of them, and we don't know anything about the others. So wow. we don't know much at all. But in terms of um, in terms of sort of treatment and therapy, I think a lot of recreational substances that were illegal, we're really looking into actually starting to study how they could be beneficial now. That's something new. I mean, there's been a big war on drugs in the last 50 years, probably stemming from America. and We haven't really looked into those substances. Um, so I think that will be something new that will slowly happen in the next decade or two. Oh, you mean like the idea of, if I'm right, I've heard about the idea of microdosing and the benefits of that. Is that something that science is looking more into? Yeah, that's one thing. MDMA... Um, I don't know if you know about MDMA, but it, the, as a drug, it works by flooding the, the brain with serotonin. So it does have a very particular relationship with how, well, antidepressants work, SSRIs. They work with serotonin as well. There's there's a whole range of different recreational drugs that could have some benefit in the particular, the right way. We don't know much about it because previously research was basically just banned. And it's only now that we're starting to look into it. So that's an interesting area. That is really exciting. And we're also, by the way, for anyone listening, we're definitely not encouraging you <laughs> to do any of this stuff. It's just science is looking into it. But that is that is incredibly interesting to, to hear about where the field could go, especially when it comes to stuff like drugs. Because I know that there was a little bit of experimentation in the 60s, right? I suppose that was a bit before the idea of the war on drugs, and then it, I suppose, just completely collapsed since then. Yeah, I, I think it, uh, recreational drug use became a bit rampant, in America particularly, so they, they clamped down hard on it, and I essentially made it taboo. But uh, things could change. I mean, we hear about sort of cannabis being legalised mm. in America, and who, who knows if it will happen here. But yeah, things are moving forward gradually. Um, so yeah, things will change. But I mean, in terms of mental health, Coming back to that, it's uh, it's great that we, there's such a big emphasis on it now than it was previously. You could argue that that you know mental health was taboo itself, and it's only recently that's not. But I mean, you could almost argue that uh, people are more lonely mm-hmm. now, people are more anxious now, people have no one to turn to now. Whether this was a problem before or not, it's hard to say. But um, I think what kept people well was sort of a sense of community, and I think with how how things are changing very quickly with the sort of adoption of uh, technology, yes. social media, the, people are, are generally more well off now than they ever were. I think it was labor in the 90s that sort of built a middle class, there's no middle class prior to that. And it's meant that we've been able to be a lot more independent, uh, live alone if we wanted to, but it has it's had this effect where it's just led to more stress and anxiety than we had before. We might benefit from coming back to having a sort of community and definitely religion played a role in that as well, having 
a sense of community. Yeah, it's a good point. And what's interesting about what you're saying too is that that's never something that you would expect to hear like a GP, for example, to say, you know, like it's it's kind of true that not everything is about a magic pill. It's about understanding a bit about how the human body works. And I think you mentioned you did a bit in psychology as well, right? So understanding how maybe we feel more natural within ourselves, how we feel connected to ourselves. I mean, that's why I hear about so much about these retreats of going back to nature and people saying that they feel so much better afterwards. I mean, there's definitely a benefit in a lot of senses of getting away from all this this complex capitalist world that we live in i'm not saying that's a good or bad thing but it's definitely a thing that's you know that exists and i think getting away from that sometimes perhaps might just be a, a great remedy for people who have certain issues definitely definitely i'm i'm pretty happy that um, mindfulness has become fashionable now and you know, you've got apps like headspace and calm yeah, I discussed that in my uh, in my last podcast, oh, actually. Right, right. Um, well-being, we're discussing Headspace, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really good that we're going that way, but I think we're going to come full circle and realise that some of the things that we were doing previously that aren't doing now were actually really beneficial to us. I think that's what's essentially going to happen. Interesting. Interesting and exciting and and scary. <laughs> it's all of them, all of the above. Also, I wanted to ask you about what is like the, some of the craziest stuff that you've seen? That's my personal curiosity coming into play. Have you seen people coming in with some like really crazy problems? Like a, you know, like, I don't know, like a bar through their hand or something. <laughs> I'm interested in that type of stuff. I mean, it's, it's difficult to not go into specifics if you want crazy stories, if you will. Um, I mean, as, as a doctor, you, you see everything. You see, you know, you see domestic abuse. Uh, you see children that have been abused. Uh, you see people that are coming in wanting opiates that's that's something that you get a lot of and you know they, they would have taken drastic measures to want to get opiates but you know they've changed their name multiple times so that they're not discovered wow all sorts really you see everything and it's a, it's a really insightful sort of profession because you do see all the different fringes of society at some point really well how can a gp react to those things like if the gp suspects of something like child abuse is, is there something which they can do or they just have to like do they call the police or do they just have to is there some kind of confidentiality there that can't be broken so there, there is um it's called safeguarding essentially where if you suspect there is a safeguarding team so so there's, there's a lot of different systems and support in the community that people aren't aware of and that's one of them so if you suspect something you probably want to speak to someone someone else either a colleague or your senior to sort of get a better idea because you you are basically you're going to change someone's life if you're going to call someone out for possible yeah abuse if you will um so obviously yeah you do have to be careful but there are a lot of systems for that in place good the, the worst thing you want to do is if someone's coming in a because they've clearly been abused as a child is to send them send them back home afterwards um but there are there are sort of uh, systems at play that you can, that can be triggered very quickly but yeah they are they can change people's lives so just got to be careful with it yes of course yeah i mean there's a lot of a lot of power in those hands really and like you said especially when you're dealing with people of all sorts of different difficulties and different areas of society i mean do you feel that there's a lot of pressure on your hands sometimes i mean i don't know what the reason it was for you coming into this maybe you like the idea of helping people but there's surely a lot of pressure which comes along with it right yeah definitely i, I think the most important thing is to sort of take breaks and reflect on it all I mean, I mean, the, the reality is once you've seen something quite disturbing once, if you see it again in the future, it's not going to affect you as much. So you do slowly become numb to seeing quite disturbing things or coming across or hearing about disturbing things. So it is difficult. And I think 
just making sure that you're you're not overworked and is the most important thing. But I mean, even within doctors, the I'll tell you, the hospital you are overworked, um, and there is a high prevalence of sort of mental health and even alcohol misuse, and that is because of what you deal with, just high stress situations so frequently. So you, I mean, there, there is a sort of there's a reason to try and look after doctors as well and the healthcare staff. They're not, you know, they're not superheroes. They are still humans at the end of the day. That's the thing with the clap for the NHS as well, isn't it? Is that if we perhaps don't treat them as superheroes, I mean, this is my opinion coming through, but, you know, they're, they're people, you know, they're people with their own issues, their own difficulties. And the fact that they're doing all that, you got to really respect what they're doing. And I like to hope that that's something which will which will carry on across and after this coronavirus period, too. Yeah, I, I hope that there's an app- the appreciation for uh, the NHS and this work is, carries on, really. It's been really good, actually, in some ways. I remember... The day before McDonald's shut down because of the pandemic, they actually gave free food to anyone who worked for the NHS. Oh, you're joking. Yeah, they were giving out free McDonald's. Gillette was giving out free razor. And then there's a there's a certain charity that comes around and gives boxes of food to all the wards, I think every two, couple of times a week. That's brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, Uber Eats were giving free food. Delivery were doing free food. It was nice. It's been really nice. <laughs> That's that's really good. I suppose, in a sense, though, I have to say it might not be good. It, it's probably good that didn't happen for too long. Otherwise, you'd be going in for yourself for obesity issues. Huz, <laughs> <laughs> I really want to thank you for being on the podcast. You've been such a great guest and really interesting too to hear what you've had to say about things with the coronavirus and things you've seen and you know the healthcare system and how you compare to other countries. It's been it's been really great having you on. So thanks for that. Uh, thanks for that. It's good to talk to you again, Bob. Yeah, no problem. And uh, yeah, talk to you soon. Take care, all the best.